Ensure your next purchase is a real deal and shop authentic handbags, watches, sneakers, streetwear and jewellery from eBay, backed by Authenticity Guarantee. Visit ebay.com for terms. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Paul Muldoon, the poetry editor of the New Yorker magazine, and it's my pleasure to welcome you here today. On this program, we invite poets to choose a poem from the New Yorker archive and to read it and to talk about it. And then we ask them to read a poem of theirs that's been published in the magazine. My guest today is Anna MacDonald, a writer, an editor a museum researcher with a particular interest in 20th century silver, the history and the acquisition of silver. Are we living in a silver age? No, we're not. Not much silver around? No, not anymore. It's too expensive and nobody makes anything interesting out of it. So it's quite the opposite of poetry? Yeah. (laughs) I don't think their trajectories mirror each other at all, but there is a moment where I think they cross over really nice. And where's that? It's around Whitman, sort of 1890 to about 1915, when, in my opinion, really interesting stuff was happening in American silver. The poem that you chose to read today from the vast uh, New Yorker load, if we may use that word, L-O-D-E, is a poem called The Magic Kingdom by Kathleen Graber. Now, what drew you to that poem? I like the way she moves. I know that people listening maybe can't look at it on the page, but it's the lines are relatively long and they're almost all the same length. And so it looks like a container or a box, the poem itself. It looks like a solid object. It does. It and looks... there's, there's a psychological impact associated with how a poem actually appears on the page. Yes, it looks really balanced. And I think because of that, I might have expected a different poem. I didn't expect a poem that had so many fragments or had so much play or so much travel. And I didn't expect one that really went out of control, which I think this poem does. Do you think its a tendency to go out of control in a strange way is set against its rather solid or perhaps even stolid appearance on the page? Yeah, I think it works in its favour. So let's hear The Magic Kingdom, which was published in The New Yorker, as it turns out, in 2008. And uh, it has an epigraph from uh, St. Augustine, uh, from the City of God. And maybe you'd read that first and then read the poem Anna MacDonald. And as in the daily casualties of life, every man is, as it were, threatened with numberless deaths. So long as it remains uncertain which of them is his fate, I would ask whether it is not better to suffer one and die than to live in fear of all. St. Augustine from City of God. The Magic Kingdom by Kathleen Graber. 
This morning I found on a slip of paper tucked into a book a list of questions I'd written down years ago to ask the doctor. What if it has spread? Is it possible I'm crazy? I've just returned from Florida from visiting my mother's last sister, who is 80 and doing fine. At the airport, my flight grounded by a storm. I bought a magazine, which fell open to a photograph of three roseate spoonbills tossing down their elegant shadows on a chartreuse field of fertilizer production waste. Two little girls emptied their Ziplocs of Pepperidge Farm goldfish onto the carpet and picked them up one by one with great delicacy before popping them into their mouths. Their mother, outside smoking, kept an eye on them through the glass. After my cousin died, my father died, and then my brother. Next, my father's older brother and his wife. And finally, after my mother died, I expected to die myself. And because this happened very quickly, and because these were, really, almost all the people I knew, I spent each day smashing dishes with one of my uncle's hammers and gluing them back together in new ways. It was strange work and dangerous, even though I tried to protect myself, wearing a quilted bathrobe and goggles and leather work gloves and opening all the windows, even in snow, against the vapors of the industrial adhesives. Most days now I get up late and brew coffee and the smell rises from the old enamel pot I've had to balance under the dark drip ever since the carafe that came with the machine shattered in the dishwasher last month. One morning I found a lump in my breast and my vision narrowed to a small dot and I began to sweat. My legs and arms felt weak and my heart thrashed behind its bars. We were not written to be safe. In the old tales, the woodcutter's daughter's path takes her each time through the dark forest. There are new words for all this. A shot of panic becomes the rustle of glucocorticoid signaling the sympathetic nervous system into a response regulated by the sensitivity of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. And as I go along, these freshly minted charms clatter together in the tender doe skin of the throat as though the larynx were nothing if not a sack of amulets tied with a cord and worn around the neck. But I tell you, I sat on the bathroom floor for hours, trembling. And I can tell you this because the lump was just a lump, and some days now I don't even dread the end, although I know it will arrive. The garage is filled with buckets of broken china. The girls chased each other and waved their arms, casting spells, the trim of their matching gingham dresses, the electric pink of the bird's wings. They turned each other into princesses and supergirls, and then they pretended to change back. Oh no, you forgot to say forever. They took turns repeating with dramatic dismay, melting into puddles of themselves, their sandals and sunburned knees vanishing beneath their hems. That was the magic kingdom by Kathleen Graber, collected in her book of poems, The Eternal City, and read uh, rather splendidly there by Anna MacDonald. Were you, you were taken over by that poem. Yeah, I mean, the it's written in the voice of a speaker who allows someone like me to fill it. It feels a little bit like something that's it's okay to turn it into a monologue. Well, in that sense, it is a dramatic monologue in the uh, tradition uh, established by, among others, Robert Browning. But the voice is uh, so beautifully uh, consistent 
that uh, it's one of the reasons why one may so effectively ventriloquize it. It is um, consistent, but it also moves really deftly without you noticing it between thinking and feeling and between different states. You know, it begins with this fragment that's just a note. And then it transitions really seamlessly into this experience at the airport, without, almost without you noticing. Right. With the, the kids with their Pepperidge Farm goldfish, yeah. the specificity of that. This quotidian liminal place, the airport, these little girls who you almost see in the periphery somehow become these charged, almost characters in a myth. One of the wonderful things that's happened in poetry, well, it's been happening for a while, I suppose, but it's been thrown into relief, I I suspect, in the last 50 years. In the American tradition in particular with uh, uh, writers like uh, Frank O'Hara, John Ashbery, the great uh, glory, the glorying in the, the, well, frankly, the Pepperidge Farm goldfish, the naming of the Pepperidge Farm goldfish, and the allowing for the Pepperidge Farm goldfish to get into the poem as vehemently as uh, a rail goldfish, as it were, might. I don't know why, but I love those specifics in poems, and I've been trying to use them in my work, and I read them a lot in other people's. In fact, I, I went to this reading in Washington, D.C. last weekend, or a couple weekends ago, And a woman has created a whole book of poetry based on Lucky Magazine editorial um, content. And she's, not only does she drop these pop references, but she's made this whole reappropriated collage of poetry out of them. Now, uh, what about the, uh, let me see if I can actually get my mouth around it, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. Yeah, yeah. That's an axis we don't actually meet quite so often as the pep- oddly <laughs> enough as the Pepperidge Farm goldfish. I think poets are really interested in um, brain mapping, for instance, or in what happens neurologically. And this is a little bit of a medical term, but it has a great fresh sound in a poem. It certainly does. This final image of uh, the bodies kind of melting into themselves like puddles is really quite uh, troubling in its way. What's yeah. happening under the surface, behind behind the hem, as it were? I don't know. I've been trying to figure out why this poem is titled The Magic Kingdom and why that last image. And Is Disney World by any chance? Yeah, it's the, the Magic, Magic Kingdom. Kingdom. Yeah, it's Disney That's World. That's one component. Yeah. So there are these, I mean, as I read it, and of course I'm reading it imperfectly, um, you know, this business about uh, they're turning each other into princesses and supergirls, uh, all this changing back and forth this particular kind of metamorphosis in which uh, Disney excels, uh, I suppose includes this image of the, the the girls in their sandals and sunburnt knees vanishing beneath their hems, as if they're melting like icebergs. But it's also, I can't help thinking of the woodcutter's daughter that's at the top of the stanza because it's almost like these girls and their princesses are this prequel to the the dark forest and that maybe these girls are going to have to go through you know they're they're innocents right but at the periphery of this poem are all these alarms well that's right and when a lump becomes something quite threatening rather than you know perhaps a piece of bread or a piece of sugar on a table in the middle of a forest it becomes something else hi i'm deborah treisman fiction editor of the new yorker Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. 
you can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. With access to so much information, it's hard to feel like an informed, discerning citizen. That's why on Make Me Smart, which is a podcast from Marketplace, we make it easy for you to stay in the know. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdahl. Every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I unpack the latest from Washington, D.C. The Senate Minority Leader has announced that he will step down as the Republican leader. What's happening in AI? Uh, I mean, don't buy at the top, but holy cow, artificial intelligence and all the companies related to it are the, the hot new thing. And we do the numbers. So as a refresher, inflation is the rate of increase in the prices of things. It's not just sort of things getting more expensive. It's a speed at which things get more expensive. Because in a world that's constantly changing, we all need to stay smart. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. So may we move on to the second part of our, our discussion today, uh, having to do with uh, one of your own poems, and it's a poem published in The New Yorker in December of 2011, a poem called Horse Piano, which, of course, is also a form of transmogrification, I suppose, isn't it? I guess so. A magical change. Uh, perhaps you'd read it for us. Horse Piano. The idea is to get a horse, a Central Park workhorse, A horse who lives in a city over in the hell part of Hell's Kitchen, in a big metal tent. You have to get one who is dying. Maybe you get his last day on the job, his owner, his tourists. You get his walk back home at the end of the day, some flies, some drool. You get his deathbed, maybe. And then, post-mortem, still warm, you get the vet, or else the butcher, to take his three best legs. And then you get the taxidermist to stuff them heavy with some alloy, steel, something. Next day, you go over to Christie's Interior Sale and buy a baby grand piano. Shabby condition, but Tony Provenance. Let's say it graced the entry hall of some or other Vanderbilt's Gold Coast Classic 6. And you ask the welder you know to carefully replace the piano legs with the horse legs. And you put the horse piano somewhere like a lobby and you hire a guy to play it on the hour so that everybody will know how much work it is to hold anything up in this world. Brilliant. I mean, the the end of it is really quite uh, breathtaking there in the way that uh, one is uh, knocked to one side of one's being by that, that last image. Can you remember how this poem itself began? Did it begin with an image? I had this good fortune to see one of those art biennales a couple of years ago. And there were all these um, ideas made physical and made concrete. And I don't really know anyone in, in the contemporary art world, but I just was so taken with 
the way that their ideas got to take up space. And so I started imagining all kinds of ideas for my own conceptual art, if you will. And I wrote about 20 of them, and this was just one of them. You could imagine Marcel Duchamp getting to work on this one. Definitely. But there are also some contemporary artists working now. There's a guy named Maurizio Catalan who actually stuffs horses. Now, I didn't know him. I hadn't seen his work before, but now I've seen them. And it just so happens that we were thinking about the same kind of things at the same time. Thank you so much for talking with us today, Anna MacDonald, Anna MacDonald's poem, Horse Piano, as well as Kathleen Graeber's poem, The Magic Kingdom, may be found on NewYorker.com. Anna MacDonald's latest poem in the magazine is Almost February. I'm Paul Muldoon, poetry editor of The New Yorker, and until next time, goodbye. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store. You can also hear poems from the magazine read by the authors in the digital edition for tablets and phones, available at no extra charge for magazine subscribers from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Pentagree Ferryman from the album The Highlander's Farewell by Alistair Fraser and Natalie Haas from Colburny Records. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Owen Agnew for Curtis Fox Productions and NewYorker.com with help from Elizabeth Dennison. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see... Whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) 